Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses, featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. And there's no way that you can pay back a billion-dollar stadium with a bunch of hot dogs and beer. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, July 28th, and I'm Kate Smith, an editor for Bloomberg News here in New York. I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Dan Moss, executive editor for Economics. Hi, Kate. You know, with the Summer Olympics early next month, it seemed like an appropriate time to talk about the economics of sport. Forget GDP, forget the trade balance. Let's talk about something interesting. No, just joking. (laughs) After all, experts estimate that Brazil's final cost to host the Games this summer its direct and indirect costs, could reach $20 billion. And let's put that $20 billion into some context. That's more than double what the country got from tourism in 2014, according to the World Bank. And let's also not forget where Brazil is right now. They're in the midst of their worst recession. So there's really, they're in no position to be spending this kind of money. Rio de Janeiro declared a state of financial emergency just two months ago. And those financial issues have also spilt into the political arena, of course. You know, we were seeing these headlines on the news about this police strike caused a huge spike in crime. And then to top it all off, there's the threat of Zika in Rio. And it's so serious that a number of athletes have actually refused to travel to the games. One of those, of course, being Irish golfer Rory McIlroy. Officials have warned that if you get sick, don't get sick. We don't want to have hospitals. That's what that's what their message is. And to be fair to Brazil, their situation is not entirely unique. London spent over $10 billion to host the Games in 2012, and Beijing paid a whopping $44 billion. And of course, one of the most notorious is Athens. So Greeks' capital spent $11 billion to host the 2004 Summer Games, and more than had ever been spent at that time, most of which was financed by public debt. Now, days after the closing ceremony, literally days, Greece began to warn people that its public debt and the deficit was going to be much worse than expected. Of course, we all know where that story goes. A Nearly year... took the Eurozone with them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, they became the first country to be placed under fiscal monitoring, and they really just spiraled into one of the biggest sovereign financial collapses we've ever seen. But let's hold the violins. These weren't <laughs> just misfortunes that happened to Rio or Athens on their way to the opening ceremony. Quite the opposite. Cities vie to host the Games. In 2009, Brazil lobbied against the US, lobbied against Spain, lobbied against Japan for the opportunity to host the Games. And eventually they won. And countries and cities keep coming back wanting to host major sporting events despite some of the economic arguments to the contrary. And that's what I find, and I think what we both find so interesting, is that why do cities still line up and fight it out to host the Olympics, even when you have so many examples? I mean, Athens is really right in recent history. So even further back, you have Montreal, their 1976 Olympics. That almost bankrupted the city. They had $1.5 billion of Olympic debt. That took 30 years to pay back. Going back over to Athens, they built 22 different structures, 
continues to host these games. 21 of which are in disrepair, they're unusable, because maintaining these facilities is also very expensive. So what drives otherwise financially sane public officials to lose their economic minds when it comes to hosting major sporting events? In a moment, we'll talk with someone who's studied the issues for more than two decades. He's a true expert in understanding why municipalities through the United States have fallen prey to the same poison chalice that lured some of the world's biggest cities to host the money-losing Olympics. First, a word from our sponsor. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99. So here to talk to us about what goes on in the U.S. specifically is Neil DeMoz. Now, he's the author of the book Field of Schemes, How the Great Stadium Swindle Turns Public Money into Private Profit. Now, one thing I really like about Neil, and I've been talking to him for a while about this kind of stuff, is before he put his microscope on the sports business world, he actually was a question writer for the game at Trivial Pursuit. So, Neil, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. I am totally in awe. <laughs> <laughs> you did that for like 12 years, right? Uh, about about 10. It was sort of overlapping with the stadium work. So um, I, I had to juggle a couple of hats once for a while or a couple of cheese wedges. <laughs> How did you get a job like that? Um, it's a long story that mostly ends up uh, involving standing in the right place at the right time. As most do. So we wanted to talk about kind of the economics of these facilities. But of course, before we can do that, we need some background. So we're in the era of the billion dollar stadium now, but we weren't there always. So, I mean, how, Neil, can you talk to us about how we got there in the U.S.? In terms of the price or in terms of the cost of the public or in terms of both? In, in terms of the price itself. Yeah, I mean... Even when my co-author Joanna Kagan and I first started researching this in the you know mid '90s, it was still you know 200, 300 million dollars was sort of the going price for a for a sports stadium, and probably a little less than that for an arena. And at the time, that felt extraordinarily high. You know, I mean, that was it, typically stadiums stadiums in decades past had been you know hundred thousand dollars, sorry, hundred million dollars or less. And what was going on then, and has continued to go on now, is just that you're not just building a stadium anymore, right? The first one that really broke the bank was Skydome in Toronto. And that was, I think, somewhere around $500, $600 million. And you weren't just building a stadium, you were building a hotel, you were building all of these food courts and hard rock cafe and um, a retractable roof. And it was sort of seen as the first of the mall parks, you know, where you're, you're building something that as the Yankees uh, COO Lon Trost wound up saying about their new building is designed to be a four-star hotel that just happens to have a baseball field in the middle of it. And so that's really what's going on is as team owners have realized, oh, hey, it's great to, to uh, make money just selling tickets, but we can also make money selling pulled pork sandwiches and hotel rooms and, you know, all the other stuff that otherwise people are going to spend across the street from our stadium. Um, we can make a lot more money that way so long as this ballooning construction cost gets pinned on somebody else other than us. And that's the second piece of the puzzle. And to what extent was Toronto's perspective shaped by the debts that Montreal incurred with the 76 Olympics? 
I think that there was certainly a cautionary tale around the Olympic Stadium for Montreal. Um, but, you know, the problem is, you know, Toronto didn't go in intending to spend $600 million. I think the original price tag was two or $300 million. But the way that these things work is that the price tag tends to go up and up and up, with, as with most construction projects where you aren't just, you know, picking something off of a, out of a catalog, but you're having to design it from scratch, which is every stadium and arena kind of has to be, has to be designed uh, on a case-by-case basis. So I think, you know, it wound up being a bit of a disaster from a fiscal perspective, but in terms of team owners looking at Sky Dome and at some of the other stadiums that came around the same time, the early 90s, and seeing, oh, this is what we should be after, it really started a gold rush where every team owner was thinking, hey, I gotta get me one of those, but I don't want to spend $600 million, so how can I figure out a way to uh, to stick this to the public? And so I imagine that's where the city funding became routine. Yeah, I mean, city funding really started becoming... Uh, uh, there's three phases to to, uh, to stadium and arena construction. The first was the one that, that was in place for most of the 20th century, which was... If you own a team and you want a stadium, you go and you build a stadium. If you can't afford a whole stadium with all the bells and whistles, you build a smaller stadium. And then once you sell that out, then you add some more seats and add some more seats. And all the old ballparks like old Yankee Stadium, Wrigley Field, if you look at old time photos, you know, in the early years, there was just they were much smaller and they kept, you know, they'd extend the seats down the left field line and they'd add a second deck and a third deck. That came to an end in the 50s and 60s when team owners realized, oh, we can move to other cities because suddenly jet airplanes have been invented. And we can use that as leverage to try to either get, you know, new cities on the West Coast to offer us new stadiums or existing cities to offer us money not to leave. So, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, you had a bunch of stadiums built, mostly those sort of big concrete donut multi-purpose baseball, football ones. But typically what would happen would be that the city or the state would put up the money and then would get paid back by rent from the team, okay? They would front the money, but by and large, usually they got it back over time. What happened in the 80s and 90s was you started to see cities, especially after you had large cuts in federal funding to cities under Reagan, cities sort of started thinking, okay, the only way that we're going to get economic activity is to try and basically bribe companies to come here. So you saw them going after auto plants and computer chip factories and all sorts of things like that. And it became big money. And I think eventually some of the sports team owners started saying, hey, you know, we're a lot more, if not lucrative, we're a lot more attractive and, you know, seem sexier than a car plant. So why don't we start playing that same game? And that's when you start to see the buildings being built exclusively but Neil, that has public to money. Be, that ha- there, there has to be a benefit to a city, right? Just to play devil's advocate here. There has to be a benefit to a city to have a professional sports team. I mean, for example, I used to be in Baltimore and... Camden Yards really just totally transformed an area of the Inner Harbor that was I mean, virtually unusable for kind of the average person. Isn't there the argument that these stadiums really do help cities? I mean, there's a, there's a reason why they should be applicable to tax-free dollars and debt? Well, I mean, you know, I, first of all, I'm a sports fan, so I never want to say there's no value to having a sports team, right? I mean, there's obviously a value if you're a sports fan of having a team in town and getting to go and see it, right? But in terms of the economics... 
Economists have now been looking at this for 30 years, and no one has found any measurable positive impact to sports stadiums. Um, and there's two real reasons. One is the substitution effect, which is that if you know the Orioles are playing in Baltimore, then sure, people are going to Orioles games, but that means they're not doing something else with their with their spending money, right? They're not going to the movies, they're not going out to dinner, they're not going to uh, games for some other sports team. And sure, a little of that is going to be, you know, if the Orioles left, probably more people would go drive down to D.C. and go to Nationals games, and that would be a loss to the Baltimore economy. But the numbers show that it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. Um, and then there's the problem that if you go to a restaurant, most of that money gets respent locally, right? Usually it's, you know, it's the, the owner probably lives locally, the staff probably lives locally, you know, they go and they go grocery shopping and it gets recirculated. Whereas the most of the money that gets spent at a sporting event goes to the owner and the players who probably, you know, live somewhere else. And so we're not going to be rushing around and buying cans of tuna right. immediately after let, the game. Let me just challenge you on that. I'm glad you mentioned DC, uh, where I lived for 10 years. Now the National Stadium, is a lovely stadium and I don't think anyone would argue with the proposition that the part of DC where that ballpark is once upon a time was not so great and a lot of stuff has gone up around that area of DC and there's look I didn't grow up in a baseball country but I've seen a few games there it strikes me as a lovely place to watch a game and that area was an eyesore a disaster now it's not that Right. But the question is, was that caused by the stadium? There are, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in D.C. and there are innumerable parts of the city that have seen huge construction booms in the last 10, 15 years. And lots of them did not have, have baseball stadiums there. Obviously, sure, if you go and you build something new, whether it's a stadium or whether it's a park or anything else um, that's attractive, if you're in a city that has a bunch of real estate developers running around and trying to figure out what's going to be the next hot new neighborhood, that's going to be something that will attract them there. But the question is figuring out, you know, what's what would have happened if the stadium hadn't been built there? Would eventually something else have, have gone into that, uh, that area around the Navy Yard? Would there have been more development somewhere in a different part of town? Not particularly there, but it would have been the same same scale. Or, you know, just what, you know, could the city have gotten better bang for its buck? I mean, it spent about half a billion dollars on that national stadium. Think about what else you could have done to spruce up a neighborhood or spruce up multiple neighborhoods um, for that kind of money. Uh, one thing that I always find really interesting, and just to kind of boil down what you're saying here, it's it's the idea that... Yes, revenue is coming in, and yes, it's wonderful for the neighborhood, but unfortunately these facilities are so expensive, like we were talking about kind of in the beginning of this section, like, you know, you're not working with a $200 million stadium, you're looking at a $750 million stadium, or even sometimes a billion dollar stadium, and there's no way that you can pay back a billion dollar stadium with a bunch of hot dogs and beer. Is that what you're looking at? Sure, and it's worse than that because you're not even getting the money from the hot dogs and the beer, right? <laughs> the, the team owner is getting the money from the hot dogs and the beer and the naming rights and the ticket sales, and all you're getting is whatever incremental tax revenue is coming in over what you would have gotten otherwise, right? So it's right. how much you're getting in hot dog tax sales tax money versus how much you would have been getting at, you know, from restaurant sales tax money um, if somebody were eating somewhere else. And again, there's a small amount of money there, but it's, it's just never going to pay back. 
Okay, but let's just zoom out for a second. Dan, you're not from the U.S. You're Australian, I believe. Your 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 accent tips you off. I mean, do we do you still have that same sports craze in Australia? You know, the face painted Jets fans and the tailgating and all the the paraphernalia. Well, it's a sports mad culture, but it's only comparatively recently that there's been a corporate framework for the sporting life in Australia. Let's take the principal summer sport in Australia, which is cricket. For most of the time, cricket's been based around a national team, state teams, and small, small clubs. The idea that that players would be under contract, the idea that the teams would be sponsored, the idea is that the players individually would be sponsored and, you know, like Shane Warne, they could wear a Nike earring. That's all pretty recent. Okay. And in fact, I'm not exaggerating, in the era when the national team was pretty much the only way to go, you would have star cricketers who would actually be on the dole between games. That's unbelievable. Now, it's unbelievable now, but, you know, this was you know, as recent as late 70s, early 80s. Okay. That would be inconceivable here. Right. So when you, I mean, I'm sure you've been to a, would you call it a cricket match or is it a cricket game? Uh, They can be both. Okay, so a cricket match slash game. So um, you've been to one, I imagine, of course. Oh, yes. (laughs) And is is it similar to going to, say, a Yankees game? Is it like, you know, you have all the amazing food and the seats and the expensive beer and the Johnny Walker? Is it like that? Well, I mean, there are different uh, levels of the game. If you take the most recent one I've been to, which was the Cricket World Cup final in Melbourne uh, in March of last year, I mean, the Melbourne Cricket Ground is a stadium structure that most people would recognise. It dates back to the 19th century, but there have been add-ons. And sure, you take your break and you work your way down to the food concession area and you can get a Meat pie with sauce and a beer, <laughs> or a Bundaberg rum and Coke. It's not that different uh, from sitting at National Stadium, but there is a lot more razzmatazz. There's a lot more neon lights flashing saying Delta United or whatever it is. Which are all, that's all just money, Yeah, right? but we're catching up fast with the corporate structure for okay. sure. Interesting. I mean, I think where I'm always confused about the stadium question in the U.S., is that, you know, we have all these leagues. We have the NFL, we have baseball, we have basketball. And even within baseball, there are several leagues. Yes, there are. There's the whole minor league system, which, I mean, it's completely takes advantage of public money, too. So you just, you have hundreds of teams. But in my eyes, as a Bloomberg reporter, that means hundreds of stadiums that are getting built. And yet, even though, you know, Neil's telling us that virtually every sports economist agrees on the lack of empirical evidence that would say that these really do benefit the towns that they're in. They make the same mistake every single time. So, I mean, Neil, I want to throw this back to you. How is it that politicians, despite all of that evidence, how do they keep making the same mistake over and over and over again? Well, there's a bunch of different incentives that uh, that politicians have for, for doing this. The most obvious one, I think, might be the most overblown one, which is that, you know, they're afraid of losing their teams, right? Everybody always says, well, you know, the team might leave if you don't give them what they want. So if you're a mayor, that's going to be the worst case scenario because, you know, people, angry sports fans will vote you out of office if your team leaves, if you don't give them a new building. The problem with that is that it's never actually happened. There are 
zero mayors in the U.S. who have been voted out of office for uh, refusing to spend public money on a on a sports facility. The the one possible counterexample is Greg Nichols in Seattle, who after the Sonics left did get voted out as mayor. But from all accounts, it was much more because he refused to salt the roads before it snowed and <laughs> was a complete gridlock in the city, um, and that was the sort of the proximate cause of him getting getting booted out. Um, on the other hand, we've got you know multiple examples of local officials who have gotten kicked out after approving unpopular stadium deals. Um, you have um, George Petak, who was a state senator in Wisconsin over the Brewers deal, who actually got was the first state official to get recalled. Um, you had um, the mayor of Miami after the Marlins deal. And just recently, we just had uh, Tim Lee, the Cobb County commissioner, who negotiated the Braves stadium deal to move them from the city to the suburbs and, you know, very proudly did it, you know, in secret without going before a public vote. And the public then told him what they thought of him by kicking him out of office overwhelmingly, you know. Are there cases, Neil, where it does create a certain esprit de corps and sense of community uh, in some urban centres where they have a powerful team and a stadium and all the infrastructure. I'm thinking of Denver, where my fiance grew up. Now, there are multiple sports teams in Denver, but let's be real, there is only one. And it hits you from the second you depart the plane, you walk past Elway's restaurant, you get on the uh, subway car to take you to the main terminal, and there's John Elway's voice. And, you know, the last couple of winters, downtown area in Denver, everything is coloured orange. And, you know, there is a real sense of, you know, community there. I mean, isn't there something intangible about it as well that just can't be measured by traditional commercial or macroeconomic yardsticks? There's absolutely something intangible. And it's, you know, there's something tangible as well. You know, I mean, there is a value to, like I said, to having a sports team to, to cheer on. Economists have even tried to put a number on what that intangible value is, right? You know, there's there's all sorts of economic um, metrics that you can use to try and measure things like clean water or anything else like that that's uh, sort of doesn't have a, a dollar value on it. And the best study I saw of this was by a guy named uh, Bruce Johnston in Kentucky. And the figure that he came up with after polling, you know, sports fans, non-sports fans, was that the value of a pro sports team was around forty million dollars? You know, that's about how much it was worth to have a have a team in your in your city. And this is a while back, so maybe you know it's sixty, eighty, even a hundred million dollars now. That you know that's what you feel like is is worth giving up in order to have the presence of a team, if that's really the threat on the table. But you know, you almost never get a stadium for that price. It's usually three hundred, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred million dollars. You know, the question isn't, should cities ever put public money into sports stadiums? You know, sure, there's always a price point where it makes sense. And I think when you have something like the San Francisco Giants Stadium, right, where there was a very minimal amount of money, it was about $30 million. The team put up most of the money. Um, it, the, the site worked really well, with, you know, in conjunction with other development that was going on. Um, you know, that's something that I think everybody is happy about. But for every deal like that, there are 20, 30, 40 deals where it's just a matter of, you know, the team owner saying, hey, write me a big check. And 
you know, somehow it'll make it worth your while later on, and they get the check, and you know, the the worth your while worth your while never comes to pass. So, given this is such a difficult cycle to break, I'm sure we're going to be hearing much more about this in the future. So, we can't thank you enough for joining us, Neil. Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so that more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter. You can find Dan at Daniel Moss DC, and you can find me at by Kate Smith. And our guest Neil is on Twitter at, at Neil DeMoss. We'll see you next week. Bloomberg Benchmark is brought to you by Sage Summit, the world's largest gathering of small and medium businesses. Featuring Sir Richard Branson, July 25th to 28th in Chicago. Register with promo code BUSINESS at sagesummit.com for just $99.